Well, we are continuing this morning with our study of the book of Acts. Uh, today we are looking at Acts 17, verse 16 to 34. Uh, this chapter finds Paul in the city of Athens, Greece. Uh, he's in the middle of his second missionary journey through the Roman Empire. Paul arrived in Athens after ministering in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. In Thessalonica, there were many who believed in Jesus as the Christ, but the leaders of the synagogue led an uprising against the mission team. Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city. They fled or moved next to Berea. Things started off differently there. We are told that they, are, that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Talked about how they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether the things Paul and Silas were teaching them really were in those words. Many of them ended up believing the gospel as well, but the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica got word that Paul and Silas were in Berea. They traveled 45 miles to stir up crowds of people against Paul and Silas, and as a result, uh, we read uh, in Acts 17 that the brothers in Berea helped Paul leave the city. He was the one who was most at risk and escorted him to Athens, so that's how he got there. Once he uh, once he got to Athens, he sent word back to Berea for Silas and Timothy to meet him there as soon as they could. Well, in the meantime, Paul was looking around the city, finding himself quite agitated in a spiritual way. Athens was known as a city that was full of idols, and that's exactly what he saw. He saw idols everywhere, and that's because it was a gathering place for just a wide range of philosophers and students and the people were open to just about anything and enjoyed the challenge of debating and discussing various belief systems. Well, Paul took the opportunity to speak to the people of Jesus, to speak to the people about Jesus and about the resurrection. His message drew a number of snide comments. He's an idle babbler, a seed picker, just an ignorant religious charlatan. They were intrigued enough, though, by what he had said to take him to the Areopagus, a more official place where, they could, where they, they could hear his message in a more structured kind of way. Well, last week, we especially focused on the references in these verses that were made to the resurrection. And, of course, Paul referred to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that was troublesome to the people, was considered a strange doctrine, uh, something they sneered at. But we talked about the centrality of the resurrection last week, but we didn't really give much attention to the, really the, the substance of Paul's sermon besides that. So today we're going to look more closely at the things Paul did to engage these philosophers who had very different beliefs than he did. So let me read for you Acts 17, 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood on the, in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. 
<coughs> for, a while, <coughs> for a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. <coughs> I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said, we're also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Aeropagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is uh, the most extensive example we have of Paul preaching to people outside of the synagogue. Uh, his approach to the Athenians is quite different from his sermon uh, that Paul gives us in some such detail in, uh, in Acts 13, which was in the city of Pisidian Antioch. That Acts 13 sermon is a good example of how Paul likely spoke in pretty much every synagogue he went to. He referred to scriptures from the Old Testament, he spoke of how they were fulfilled in Christ. He, he spoke of how Jesus was largely rejected by the religious leaders, Jewish leaders. He was crucified and then rose again from the dead. Well, as we've seen, Paul continues with that focus on Jesus and the resurrection. But here in Acts 17, he doesn't speak of how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the promised Messiah. In Athens, Paul is speaking to people who probably had little or no knowledge of the Scriptures. So his approach is still thoroughly biblical, but he goes at it in a different way. And I think there's some things we can learn from Paul's message here and even his technique. First thing we need to note, take note of is this. The Christian worldview, the Christian worldview gives the structure for how believers think about life and their interactions with others. One of the things that's very clear in these verses is that the worldview of the various philosophical groups that are represented here was very different from the Christian worldview that Paul was presenting. It would not just be a matter of adjusting a few things here and there. In order for the Epicurean or the Stoic philosophers to embrace the gospel that Paul was sharing with them, they would have to abandon their current belief system. And you can tell that they understand that by their reactions to Paul's messages. As we noted last week, they considered Paul to be proclaiming strange deities. He was presenting a new teaching, one that was just so strange to their ears to even hear it. And as again, as we noted, uh, when he finished speaking, a good many of them sneered and scoffed at what he had to say, especially when he brought up the resurrection. Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes some interesting observations about the differences between believers and unbelievers, and especially from the, this worldview 
uh, uh, perspective that we're thinking about. I'm not going to read those verses, but I just want to give you some of the highlights. In verses 4, 17 to 24, Paul uses several different phrases to describe non-believers, how, how, how we think. He says, he says, they walk in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding. They're full of ignorance and are hard-hearted toward the things of God. Then he makes a contrast, but he says, but Christians, you're different from that. He says, you didn't learn Christ in that way. In other words, the life and teachings of Christ that characterize your life are completely different than those things that characterize the, the, the life of someone who is not a Christian. Now, this isn't being said as a point of pride because there's no, nothing to be pride about there. On the contrary, the only reason Christians are different from the world is because God in his grace has overcome that hard-heartedness in our heart toward him. We're saved by his grace, not by anything that we've accomplished by ourselves. But he does point out that there is a definite difference. So when Paul spoke, he spoke from the vantage point of the Christian worldview. And that's the worldview that ultimately guided everything he had to say. Let me make a couple comments about that. First, the Christian worldview is based on God's revelation to man in his word. It's based on God's revelation to man in his word. The Christian worldview is not based on things that seem right to us. It is not based on what you may feel in your heart. The Christian worldview is based on the things that God has revealed. Those are the things that Paul is going to focus on. He was deeply provoked in his spirit by the idolatry he saw. That's because he knew the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of things on earth for the purpose of worship. It was his deep understanding of God and his law that, for, that informed Paul's response to what he saw in Athens. He was looking at it from his worldview, from the Christian worldview. Well, in his message, he goes into some detail about God creating the world. He got that from the book of Genesis. He speaks of the fact that there is one true God who is Lord over heaven and earth. Well, that's a common theme throughout the Word of God. He speaks of the reality of judgment and the need to repent from sin. Again, common, common themes from the Scripture. And he obviously has spoken in some detail of who Jesus was and his conversations in the marketplace. And Jesus is the Word made flesh. So his references to Jesus are built, again, on God's revelation to man through his word. The fact that Paul's message to the Athenian philosophers is based on God's revelation in the word of God is really important for us to keep in mind. Paul was not making any attempts to be neutral. He was not trying to find neutral ground. The reality is nobody is neutral. Everybody has a worldview that they consistently follow. Now, not everyone is aware of what their worldview is but everybody has one, and they consistently follow and react consistent with their worldview. So Paul was not sacrificing his worldview to seek to be relevant to people who just considered him a lowly seed picker. He was being consciously consistent with God's revelation in his word, and we need to do the same thing. One key example of this is the next point, the doctrine of the resurrection that Paul spoke of can only be understood in the light of the Christian worldview. In verse 18, the reason that Paul is seen as, as a proclaimer of strange deities 
is because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the way this sentence is structured, it could be saying they thought Paul was speaking of two different deities, one called Jesus, the other called resurrection. Some of your Bibles may actually capitalize resurrection to kind of uh, indicate that, 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 that that's a possible way to understand what was going on here. Now, obviously, that is not what Paul meant. But the fact that some interpreted his words in this way shows very vividly the futility of their minds and the darkness of their understanding. They had no context. They had no context for understanding the doctrine of resurrection. It made no sense to them. We also need to recognize that when, he, when we are told that Paul was speaking of the resurrection, it's obvious that he was saying a lot more than that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just exist as a standalone doctrine, a standalone point in time. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. If Paul was saying, I know a guy who was resurrected from the dead, well, that's just a freak of nature. That's a Ripley's believe it or not kind of thing. If that's all he was saying. The resurrection doesn't stand alone like that. Instead, it's a crucial aspect of the entire Christian worldview. In fact, it's so crucial that if it turns out not to be true, the Christianity falls apart. That's part of what was big part of what we were talking about last week. If you're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you have to talk about who Jesus is. You have to talk about him being the Son of God who took on human flesh and came to earth. You have to talk about why he came to earth. He came to accomplish salvation for sinners. You have to talk about his death and why he died. He died as a substitute. He died to endure the wrath of God for sinners. He died to take the judgment, the condemnation that everyone deserves. Those are the things that give the Christian context for the resurrection. So that means that in the resurrection, God was saying that the salvation for sinners that Jesus came to accomplish was fully accomplished. He finished the work. Therefore, he was raised. Sin and death is defeated in Christ's resurrection. Now, we are not specifically told here by Luke that Paul addressed all of those things that I just listed. We are just told he spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. But again, the resurrection makes no sense outside of the, outside of the Christian worldview. So all that to say that when Paul addressed the unbelieving philosophers in Athens, he was doing it from the perspective of a Christian worldview. He was not trying to argue in some neutral way. He was making his arguments in the context of his faith, of his faith, not theirs, of his faith. Now, as we get to the beginning of Paul's message, we get a great example of the fact, number two, that people need to be reminded and called to account for the reality that God is the sovereign creator. God is the sovereign creator. This is such a key part of what Paul has to share. And the things that he says in verses 22 all the way through 29 all relate to this in some way. So let's kind of work our way through these verses. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So what I think we can see from these verses is this. God has caused his existence to be known to all. God has caused his existence to be known to all. One of the verses that is a really helpful verse when you're trying to talk with someone uh, about your faith, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give, an, uh, to give a, an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So with Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul is giving his defense of the Christian faith And it's important to note that he really does this with gentleness and reverence. He begins in a very kind and gracious way. His greeting, men of Athens, respectful greeting. There's no arrogance. There's no name calling like they tried to, like they called him. A respectful greeting. He then says that he observed they were very religious in all aspects. The words used for religious here can be used one of two ways. It can speak of a person who is very devout in their faith. Or it can speak of a person who is really just more superstitious in their faith. It can really be understood either way, and it's used in, in both contexts at different times. Good word for Paul to use here, because he had in mind that their faith was more in line with religious superstition, which he's going to show them in a moment. But they could hear it as being more in line with how devout they were, which actually gives Paul a chance to gain more over their hearing before they shut him off. Something else is going on here as well. To understand what I think Paul has in mind, we need to look at Romans chapter 1. At this point in Paul's life, of course, he has not yet written the book of Romans, but I believe he understood all of those doctrines that he would write later and regularly taught them in the cities that he visited. And it's in Romans 1.16 that Paul begins to share his detailed understanding of the truths of the gospel. So I want to go ahead and read for us uh, verses 16 to 22 of Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So Paul speaks of the gospel as being the power of God for salvation. Then he begins to explain why that salvation is so necessary. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness especially has to do with sins towards God, unrighteousness, probably especially referring to sins uh, toward people. But all aspects of that deserve the wrath of God. And he wants to make it clear that every single person is accountable to God. And he states plainly that God has made his existence evident 
within all people. And not only is it evident from within, which would tie into the conscience, for example, not only is it evident from within, but he says in creation, his invisible, his eternal, his divine attributes are seen. You can just see it in creation. God's character is stamped on his creation. And because of that, no one can make an excuse that they didn't know about God. I think when Paul tells the Athenians that they are very religious, he's making reference to this reality. The true God has made himself known to them. Paul also introduces something in these early words that he's going to expand on later. He speaks of all the objects of their worship that are present in the city. And then he speaks of of, of the one altar that's specifically addressed to an unknown God. So yes, they are very religious. God has revealed himself to them. But their multiple idols and their acknowledgement of an unknown God makes it clear they have sinfully distorted what God revealed to them. They worship in ignorance. Their religion is more in line with superstition than a true worship of the one living God. So Paul introduces this, their sinful response to God in verse 23, but as I said, he's going to have more to say about that later. He then has an additional truth from the Christian worldview that they need to hear. Since God's the creator of all, he is also sovereign over all. Verse 24, Paul speaks of the God who made the world. The one true God is the creator. You might remember from last week, the Epicureans, for example, believed that matter was eternal and that these eternal atoms had randomly come together in such a way as to cause the heavens and the earth to come into existence. Well, they were wrong. The heavens and the earth were created by God. And since God is the one who made the heavens and the earth, he is also the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He's the creator, and he sovereignly rules over them. He rules over all things. Because of that, they are all accountable to God. They have no right to develop their own ideas about who God is. They have no right to develop their own ideas of what right and wrong is or what is true and what is false. God is their creator. He's the creator of all men. Since he's their creator, he is the sovereign Lord who rules over all things. They're accountable to God for what they do with their life. And there will be a day, a final accountability, where they must stand before God as their judge. And again, Paul's going to get to that more specifically a little later. Well, next we see that Paul makes it very clear that it's foolish to believe that God is dependent on man, man who he created and rules over, that he's dependent on man for anything. Look at verses 24 to 27. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would see God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul now begins to directly address the idols and pagan temples that fill their city. 
He says, the one who is the creator, who is the sovereign Lord over the heavens and the earth, does not dwell in a temple that man has made for him. Now, what he says here is virtually a direct quote from what Paul would have heard Stephen say when he was testifying before the Sanhedrin, just before he was stoned to death. Stephen said in Acts 7, 48, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Stephen, what he was doing was rebuking the Sanhedrin for how they had virtually turned the temple into an idol. God did manifest his presence in the temple, but he also made it clear that heaven and the highest heaven could not contain him. He truly fills all things. The Athenians were treating their pagan temples as if their little g-gods actually lived there. Their little g-gods were confined to a particular address on a particular street in Athens. That's just foolishness. Furthermore, Paul makes it clear that the one true God exists independently of man. He's not dependent on man for anything. How could that be? I mean, in fact, man is completely dependent on God for every aspect of our existence, every single one. The very life we have is given to us by God. Every breath that we breathe comes from God. And the fact that we breathe so consistently, if you're alive, you breathe consistently, that is a moment-by-moment reminder of our full dependence on God. Every breath is a reminder of that. He's the one who gives us our breath, our very existence as a person. Whenever he decides our time is, is, is over, the breath will stop. But he's sovereign over that. All things in the earth owe their existence ultimately to, the, to, to God as the creator. And then Paul focuses even more on man's dependence on God. Verse 26, he says, God made from one man every nation of all mankind to live on the face of the earth. So the creation of mankind began with one man. doesn't mention Adam's name here, but that's obviously who he's referring to. And every other person, which you got from Genesis once again, and every other person who has ever existed is related to that one man. So there is a unity, so to speak, in man in the sense that we are all the offspring of one man, all creatures of the same God, all under the authority of the one sovereign Lord. Yes, and he points this out. We've lived at different times. His creations have lived at different times in history. His creations have been divided into nations who speak different languages and have developed different countries. But we all come from one man, all created by the one true God. And the specifics of our existence in this world and in history is because we are all under the providential rule of God over all things and all people. The study of history is the study of God's providence. That's always helpful to me to remember when I'm studying history. This is studying the providence of God. In verse 27, Paul gives a further reason for man's existence on the earth. He says, it is that they would seek God, grope for him, and find him. Well, this is once again an allusion by Paul to the fact that God has made himself known to all men 
through their inward thoughts, through their conscience, as well as by making his divine attributes visible and clear in creation. So the, and the idea of groping for God indicates something that's rather clumsy and uncertain, an uncertain pursuit. But their clumsy pursuit is their own fault. God has made himself evident enough so that man has so that no man has any excuse for rejecting him. Paul then reminds them that in reality, God's not far from any one of us. He is very present. Our very existence, again, is in itself a reminder of the God who created us and to whom we are accountable. So it's foolish to believe that God is somehow dependent on man. On the contrary, we're the ones who are completely dependent on him for our existence. Then Paul hones in even more specifically to this next fact, and that is man has sinfully suppressed, has sinfully suppressed the knowledge of the one true God and replaced him with gods of their own making. Verses 28 and 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Wait, did I read what I meant to read? Okay, I don't want to mix you up here, even though I did just mix up myself. Okay, I'm going to read this over. I'm going to start in verse 28. Yeah, I started the wrong place. Verse 28, sorry. We can cut that out of the tape maybe. <laughs> verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So here Paul further elaborates on man's dependence upon God when he says that it's in him we live and move and have our very being, our very existence. Now this is apparently a quote from a philosopher named Epimenides, that Paul uses here. And as we look at ourselves and recognize we are alive, it reminds us that our life comes from God and we owe our full faith and allegiance to him. As we look around and see other people who were obviously alive and breathing and moving, we're reminded again of all of our full dependence on God as our creator and require, he requires our faith and allegiance from all of us. Now, to further illustrate that and further transition to addressing their guilt, Paul actually quotes and makes it more clear here from another philosopher named uh, Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. For we also are his children. He's using this to point out that even their own philosophers acknowledge man's dependence on God. Of course, this is not literally and completely true as when we're thinking about we are his children because we're... We're all God's creation in that sense, and, that, and that's how Paul is using it here. We're all his children in that natural sense, but only Christians are children of God in the supernatural sense. In our sinful nature, Paul says we're actually children of wrath in Ephesians 2. So his point is that since we are created by God and fully dependent on him for our existence, why would anyone think that the divine nature could be replicated and something made out of gold or silver or stone, a temple that man had 
thought, thought up and made with his own hands. Okay, now, question here, important question. Why does God quote from two pagan philosophers if his context is the Christian worldview, why does he bring pagan philosophers into it? It's a good question. And people have several different answers. I'm just going to give you mine. <laughs> and it, just, it gets confusing when you start looking at everybody's answers. So I'll just tell you, here's, here's, what I, here's what I believe. He's using their own teachers to make his point, like I said, that man is created by God. Man is dependent on God and therefore accountable to God. He's using their own teachers for that. But there's another reason. Their statements, these statements from these philosophers, these poets, their statements are ultimately an example of their distortion of the truth. The God that these philosophers were talking about was Zeus. That's who they're talking about. They're not talking about the one true God. They were talking about Zeus, which is a further example of how deceived they were. Greg Bonson makes this observation, which I thought was helpful to me. He says, Paul demonstrated that even in their abuse of the truth, pagans cannot avoid the truth of God. They must first have it in order that they might then distort it. So like Paul said in Romans 1, God has made himself evident to all men from within their conscience and from the created world in which they live. But men suppress that truth, Paul told us, in unrighteousness. And when they suppress that truth, they distort that truth. And these quotes show us that they could not totally get away from the fact that God had made them. But they had so distorted what God had revealed that they believed that what they believed did not even refer to the one true God anymore. This further shows the consequences of suppressing the truth, again, that Paul laid out in Romans 1. And I'm just going to list some of the phrases he used that were consequences of doing that. It proves that they're without excuse. It shows, along with their city full of idols, that they have not honored the one true God. It shows they have become futile in their speculations. It shows that their own foolish hearts have become darkened. It shows that professing to be wise, they have become fools. So who's the seed picker? <laughs> professing to be wise, they are the ones who have become fools. Paul shows great insight and using quotes from their own philosophers to prove their own sinful guilt before God. They're idolaters without an excuse. And they are accountable to their creator to give an account for their foolish and sinful lives. So now Paul brings his message to a close. So we're reminded, number three, that the only hope for any person is repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul used those quotes from pagan philosophers not to show how similar they were to the Christian faith. Instead, he used them to show how insufficient they were. He is making the point that even in your best attempts, you are proving that you are guilty of sin and idolatry and you need to repent. He makes this point first by saying, point A, God is patient, but judgment is real, and he commands all people 
everywhere to repent from their sin and unbelief. Verse 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul points out that there were times of ignorance when he spoke with uh, uh, other Gentile who were uh, idol worshipers in Lystra. Paul said this, he said, In past generations, God allowed nations to walk in their own way. But now they're being clearly called to repentance. Now that period of forbearance is past. The clear revelation of God's will is no longer confined only to the nation of Israel. I mean, he's in Greece now proclaiming these things. And in an emphatic way, Paul says God is now, the word now there is emphatic, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. There were no exceptions, in other words, to this call. It applies to every single person, people, and every single nation. As we noted, though, even in those times of forbearance, God had still was still making himself known. But that revelation is now more clear and more precise. There's still no excuses. They must repent. They must change their minds about what they believe and about who they worship. They must turn from their idolatry. They need to see that judgment is real. The sovereign creator has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Final judgment is real. It will take place. Every person must give an account. And he says, now's the time to repent, to prepare for that. Next we see, God calls all to believe in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Paul refers to Christ here as the capital M man that God the Father has appointed to judge the world. And the proof of who this man is is given in the fact that God raised him from the dead. Now at this point, again, there's different ideas about what happened, about what's going on here. Some would say maybe Paul was interrupted at this point and he really couldn't give more information, you know, to give a fuller uh, presentation here. I don't go with that because it doesn't seem, yeah, I mean, there were people who were upset, but it just, it just, this was not people who were being hostile. There wasn't hostility going on. His life wasn't being threatened. It wasn't the same kind of thing as happened in other places. So I don't really think that's what's going on. It's possible, but I don't, that's not what I, where I would go. Others say that maybe Paul purposely left out some of these details, uh, about not getting so specific uh, for referring to Christ. I kind of don't think that's true either. What I think is that Luke has chosen not to give us all the details of what Paul said. He's given it to us in other ways. Back in verse 18, for example, Paul was actively proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. He was not holding anything back. He was clearly speaking of Jesus Christ. And as we also saw, there is no way you can speak of the resurrection of Christ as a standalone doctrine. The whole Christian faith hangs on the truth of the resurrection. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus' righteous life, his sacrificial death on the cross. All those things have to be understood when speaking of the resurrection. So I'm inclined to think that Paul did speak more clearly about Christ, but Luke chose not to give us all the details. He gave us more the thumbnail sketch of this part of the message. 
The call is to repent from sin, from unbelief and idolatry, and trust in Jesus as the risen Savior and Lord, the one who is not only the judge, but also the Savior. The only hope for any person anywhere in the world is repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, we see from the responses that Luke gives us that it is the Spirit of God who enables any person to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. Look at verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see three different responses to Paul's message. It seems that most of those who were present sneered at the idea of a resurrected Savior and turned away. They didn't believe. Others said they were willing to hear more about what Paul had to say about this. But we also see that there were some who believed. Luke mentions two people by name in particular, probably because they were people of some standing that would be recognizable names. One was Dionysius, who was part of the council, actually, of the, at the Areopagus. Another was a woman named Damaris, uh, again, assuming that it was somebody that they would have known that name, and there were some others as well. This is a reminder to us that it's not our skill as a speaker that will bring someone to Christ. We can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. We need to seek to be persuasive. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was seeking to be persuasive as he explained these things. But in the end, another person's salvation does not depend on you or me. It doesn't depend on us. The ones who believed are the ones that the Holy Spirit enabled to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who uses the word of God preached to convict a person of their sin and of the need for righteousness and of the reality of judgment. It's the Holy Spirit who causes a person to be born again, regenerated, like we read about earlier, so they can understand the truth of the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit who grants us the ability to trust in Christ as the risen and reigning Savior and Lord. And thank God, so grateful that that's exactly what he does. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you again for giving us examples. This is a little bit different approach than we've seen before, at least as far as his deed has laid out for us. But it helps us to see some things, again, about the gospel and about Paul's presentation, about the need to, to relate to people in certain ways. Lord, thank you for the example here. Thank you for the just uh, what I think just kind of stands out is that, that we are always consistent with what the Christian worldview says. We're never start, We're never to compromise, to try to pretend like we're neutral. Thank you for the fact of that Christian gospel that you have given to us. Help us to be faithful to that. We want to be reasonable. We want to talk with people. We also want to make sure that we stand firm for what we know is right. Help us to do that when we have those opportunities. And thank you just for the reminder here of how you use your word to bring about faith. We know that you're the one who ultimately causes any of us to understand and to be able to believe. So thank you for that reminder that you're the one who does that. If you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to believe. Every one of us are accountable before God. We all must give an account. 
Every one of us are going to fall short in giving that account. There has to be a Savior. And thankfully, we have a crucified but risen Savior. I would invite you to put your faith in Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I know that I have fallen short. I know I have not believed in Christ. I know I have not really followed him. There is so many examples of sin in my life. But I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the very Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.